Post-production for this episode of Fruit Bowl is sponsored by Spaces, the new chat-based app for queer people to connect over all the things they're passionate about. And now, for a limited time, you can invest in Spaces for as little as $100 via a WeFunder campaign. Help support this much-needed, safe, digital platform for the LGBTQ community. Look for Spaces in the App Store and learn more about how you can invest by visiting QueerSpaces.com. Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. This week's guest, John, is a comedian and drag artist who I first saw perform in the early 2000s with his comedy group, The Nelly Olsons. I'll never forget it because I was in film school at the time and they performed an interpretive dance to Bernard Herrmann's opening credit theme from Hitchcock's Psycho, the grandmother of all psychosexual horror slasher films about a cross-dressing killer who assumes the identity of his dead mother. In this interview, John describes first learning about sex by watching Dress to Kill, Brian De Palma's reinterpretation of Psycho, set in 70s New York City. John saw Dress to Kill as a kid after HBO was first introduced in his family's home in Tallulah, Louisiana in the early 80s. Now, Dress to Kill, like Psycho, is a very problematic film, especially in how it portrays the trans experience. But when you live in a place like Tallulah, Louisiana in the 80s, you take what you can get, and even exploitative representations of queer identity felt meaningful. When I was growing up in small town Kansas in the 80s, my queer erotic lifeline was the international mail clothing catalog that arrived each month. Other interviewees have described discovering queer sex through music or science textbooks, camp movies or TV shows, and of course, porn. John makes a living by mixing all of these kinds of queer and queer-adjacent media and interpreting it through his drag persona, Connie, who flexes her extreme aerobic dance moves while wearing leotards, leg warmers, and high heels. I get exhausted just watching her. I placed John's Connie among the great drag acts, right up there with Dina Martina and RuPaul. If you're a fan of Drag Race, you might have seen Connie as a guest in Season 11, Episode 6, where she led the girls through an 80s workout regimen in preparation for the Drag Olympics. I will include a link to her appearance in the show notes of this episode. The Spaces app is now available on Android, and we've been welcoming a lot of new members to the Fruit Bowl Spaces. One member in the Fruit Bowl After Dark Room has been providing serial installments that describe his first adventures dating when he was a hot young thing in the early 80s in the suburbs of San Francisco. Other topics we've been discussing include masturbation frequency and the White Lotus, So download Spaces and join in on the conversation. This is also the final Spaces-sponsored episode of the season, and I'd like to take this opportunity to personally thank Spaces for sponsoring most of Season 4's episodes. 
I can say with absolute certainty that we would not have made half as many episodes this year if it wasn't for their generosity. Spaces Funding helped me train and paid my editing staff for their hard work, which allowed me to focus on developing other Fruit Bowl projects this year, including our Fruit Bowl event in August, for which Spaces was also a sponsor, as well as a brand new Fruit Bowl short film that I'm currently completing. Most importantly, Spaces Funding and my assistant editors have helped keep me from burning out and feel more supported in my efforts to produce Fruit Bowl. Before this year, I had basically done all the production work myself, and I really needed a break. So thank you, Spaces, and my friend Stephen Horbelt for believing in Fruit Bowl and supporting grassroots queer media. I really appreciate it. Speaking of sponsors, if you know of any queer businesses or sugar daddies or sugar mommies who would like to sponsor an episode, please let me know. Sponsorships are 100% tax deductible, made possible by our fiscal sponsorship with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. If you want to know more about sponsor opportunities, write dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com. Thanks to Ethan W., Darren D., Butch L., and Brian S. for becoming our latest patrons. We are still hovering around $300 that our patrons contribute each month for things like website maintenance, production costs, and promotional efforts. Patrons receive early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, as well as access to video clips from current and past episodes that are not available to the general public. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate for more information on how you can help. Thanks to Danny Tayara, the editor of this episode. John's original interview was recorded in February of 2020, but immediately following his original interview, you'll hear our follow-up conversation that was recorded just a few weeks ago. Also, just a heads up, John's original interview does describe a sexual assault that happened with an acquaintance in his early 20s. Okay, that's enough for me. Now, here's John. I lean forward and there was a slit that you could see through where like the urinals were. And right when I leaned forward, the guy was looking back at me and he, he like hung like a horse. All right, for some reason, that scared the shit out of me. This is Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. My name is John, I'm 52. I graduated high school in 1985. This episode was recorded in February of 2020 in Los Angeles. I was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi, which is just on the other side of the Mississippi River from Louisiana. My family is still in that area, not the same hometown. Um, hometown was Tallulah, Louisiana. It's, you know, they're like little ghost towns, practically. There's not much going on. 
if it was very conservative. And But, you know, Louisiana still has New Orleans, so, you know, people party and do whatever. But politically, Louisiana has always been, a, you know, interesting, hot mess. I was from a very segregated town. I went to an all-white high school. I've been warning the world, the United States and all my liberal friends for decades about, um, you know, like how I grew up, you know, when people be like, oh, people aren't racist like that. And I'm like, we're in New York City. It's like, they're not <laughs> racist like that up here. But if I was to take you back home, your eyes would be bugging out at what your ears would be picking up. Every misfit in town kind of congregated to my dad's store. So he was kind of like this Archie Bunker type that the things that would come out of his mouth would just be like, oh my God, but they were kind of brilliant in their ignorance, I guess you would say. Um, so in order to get around that, you know, uneducated person, to see their heart, you know, I would just look to see who he surrounded himself with. So I always go like, ah, he's a really good guy. Um, but yeah, he got in trouble in the end of his life. As, you know, we thought back on my father's life and everything and about how we grew up, then people would start talking about it. Like, it really bothered me that he was racist. And, and my mom was kind of a, she, she was kind of a mean girl. I, I could tell, she was, she was tough. She was also very, doesn't really have an edit button in a sense. She could try, but I have those same qualities. So I kind of, I feel like I get her compulsion to say the wrong thing because sometimes it just, I, you can't stop it from coming out, you know? I was the youngest of four, but was the second accident, as we would have called them. So when I was in the first grade, my brother next to me was in the sixth grade, and then the brother next to him was a senior, and then my sister was two years older than that brother. So my sister and I were pretty close, because my sister you know, was my babysitter and stuff like that. We were religious, but my dad wasn't a big church goer. That was my mom's thing. Something my mother always said growing up, she's like, I'm just one of the bunch. And I'm like, I, I don't want to be. And that's also something like with, with the church, you know, like one of the flock, we're just sheep. I'm not a sheep. No, that just was a mind fuck for me. I could not get over the fact I'm like, it's more important for you to make me seem like I fit in with your other kids or the other guys. But yet, for a gay guy, you know, to be forced to play football, to kind of man up, parents shouldn't make their kids do that. It's like, well, number one, I get to see everyone's penis, which is awesome, so thanks. But you're also setting me up to fail, not just in front of you, but in front of the whole town. Because it's like I couldn't catch a ball, couldn't throw the ball, couldn't run. I suck at it, so I don't understand it's okay. You can suck, but just be straight. You just say you like football. Did your parents ever have the talk with you? No, there was, in fact, I totally called my mother out on that. I was like, when are we going to have the talk? You know, like, when are we going to have the talk? And she, 
just was like, didn't know what to say, and then came out with, you watch HBO. When we got HBO, that became, I, I mean, oh, she, my mother would flip out. She just couldn't deal with it. But it was probably because she was just a very sexual being. It was just repressed. So therefore, oh. Every time Dress to Kill was on HBO, she would haul ass. I had already seen Dress to Kill like five times, but that movie terrified her. My earliest sexual things were dressing up in my mother's clothes though, so I was a little drag queen. It was back when I was still small enough to, I could still fit into some of my mom's shoes and she would bust me for, like getting in her makeup or maybe breaking something. Always on a Saturday night, because I was left alone. I was also into slasher movies, so with the makeup would always come a packet of ketchup to then have to murder myself, you know, and become a dead body. My first crushes were like Lyle Wagner on The Carol Burnett Show. I had a really good looking uncle that I thought was really cool. He was just the best looking guy in our family and he was French. He always told me he was Lebanese. <laughs> he and my mother's sister were married. They were the only ones that didn't have any kids. So I always felt like they were so cool because they, you know, liked to go out and dance and drink and whatever. Um, I always remember being attracted to guys, dad, daddy types. Most of my good friends I wound up meeting in church, and the kids were still the kids from school, but I felt like they were somewhat nicer because we all grew up in church together because we all went to vacation Bible school, kindergarten at the church. We had also gotten a young minister of music and a young preacher when I was in high school, and they were both attractive guys, and I wound up head over heels in love with my music director. So I, my eyes were focused on him. He was just, he was so handsome. He had beautiful blue eyes, furry bear. I mean, if the bear community could have seen this guy back then and the chest hair and the pink, I mean, he, he was really like the object of my affection. So I would take every opportunity to try and catch him you know if we went on church you know where we were all bunking together to try and get you know i wanted to see him naked he had nice feet i had always been into music so i got more into singing and that was at the point when my mother started getting like why are you spending so much you know i'm like girl you the one that got me into church now you know but that was more because, you know, she wanted attention and now you're giving the attention to the director of music and, you know, or I don't know, who, who knows what she could have thought. The whole introduction of pornography, learning how to masturbate or having a initial sexual experience all kind of happened at the same time. And it was probably around fifth or sixth grade, I would say, probably. A friend of mine, his father, looked at Penthouse and other magazines like that. So the boys, they would steal them, these other two guys in my neighborhood. And 
we would say, we're going to go look for por pornos or whatever we call them back then. I don't know what we call play, probably just generally called them playboys. And I do remember <laughs> looking at people's trash and we would, oh, we scored. It was amazing. And it kind of started this thing because I, my favorite thing to do downtown Tallulah, Louisiana was to hang out at my dad's furniture store because there was this alley behind the store where there was just fluorescent light bulbs, cardboard boxes, everything. I would go play back there. I would find all, you know, velvet, cherry, club internet. I mean, that's when I became very well versed on, there's lots of porn. It's not just Playboys. So a lot of that, and then discovering magazines that would then have men, I would then find myself much more leaning towards, you know, obsessing over those photographs and stuff like that. And I didn't know what masturbation was, but with one of those guys, we were over at his house one day and he was in the back and he was, you know, just kind of making these whispering noises and stuff. It was like, what is going on? And I walked in on him and, you know, he was, you know, like masturbating himself. And I do remember he said something to the extent of, Oh, I was doing this last night and I peed sperm. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right. I didn't get it. It didn't seem fun to me. So I guess I was already getting erections. I don't know if I'd ever had a wet dream. I don't think so. But later, I think it was later that night or maybe the next night, I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and I'm going to find out what he's talking about. And I remember grabbing it and being like very forceful, like, let's figure it out. And I remember that first painful, like, oh my God. I remember thinking that hurt, like <laughs> never doing that again. And I remember the smell, it was just like a sweet gum tree had just blossomed. It was that just kind of like sweet, you know, not spearminty, but there was just, you know, it's that kind of ugh, nauseating smell. After that, it seemed to just become, you know, all right, let's try it again, whatever. And then you would do it with, you know, your friend or your buddy. Um, and I think there was only, yeah, there was only that, that just this one friend of mine. We were going to be like, oh, you know, you can do it up your butt or anal or whatever. And I remember we were going to try that out on each other, but we had no idea about like lubes or <laughs> we were just trying to like stick it in or, but you know, again, it was just maybe one time that happened, you know, um, it was more just, I, I look at it more as just exploration. You know, you got to try it out on somebody once he started dating, um, girls and everything. It's like, we didn't really hang out that much. Never discussed it again. He wound up, you know, married, whatever, you know, just like a little rite of passage and then, okay, that's it. Do you think back of it on it as a positive experience? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, that was all fun. I mean, we were hustling pornos, digging holes in lots and burying them. I, to me, it was just like, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. It was Northeast Louisiana, Bayou country. It was just as rural and innocent as sexual awakening can be.
After like playing around in school, that's when I became aware of public restrooms, men's rooms. And that's when I became aware of like, why is there a hole? I'm like, oh, wow, you can see. And then it would become this weird voyeur thing of where then you would look around the malls for you know, certain restrooms that would have graffiti or like there was always a number, you know, and even reading that stuff was erotic in a sense that, oh my God, that's exciting. You know, I was in a restroom at the mall. I was in high school and I felt the presence of someone in there. And I remember going down and looking underneath the stall and I saw a guy looking like on, you know, looking up and it's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And then he came over and I could see him through the slats in the stall. And he, I could tell he had his cock in his hand and I must've been really young because he said, do you know how to give a blowjob? And I don't even think I knew what a blowjob. I, I, I think I'd heard that, but I wasn't quite sure because I knew that Oral sex involved sucking, so I don't. I'd never understood blow. <laughs> Do you blow on it, or you know? And I said no, but I know how to suck a dick. I said that, and he came right in, and and he was black. So if you think down south, 1980, you know, if they would have caught a black guy like and some little white kid. Oh my God, I just. The thought of that, the thought of my, I mean, my God, I, I can't imagine what would have happened. And then from then on, I do remember I, every, that was something I looked forward to every week was to kind of see what was going on in the men's room. Then there was one incident that scared the living shit out of me. Um, I was in a stall and I remember hearing someone come in and it was kind of quiet and I remember I remember you had to move very quietly you know you know as so you know they would think you were just in there to do your business so I remember I leaned forward and there was a slit that you could see through where like the urinals were and right when I leaned forward the guy was looking back at me and he, he was like hung like a horse all right Big. He was this big, good-looking guy. For some reason, that scared the shit out of me. Because it was like, you know, like you saw Michael Myers or something. It's like, I'm just going to peek over. And all of a sudden, it's like, boom! And it's looking right back at you. Then he came over in front of the... And I kind of felt like this caged animal. Now... When I go back and think about it, I'm thinking, why didn't I just go through with it? Because he was he was hot, you know, but there was just there was just something intense about it that just scared me a little bit. It was too intense. My second year of college, I got a summer job at the Hotel Bentley which was the only four-star hotel in Louisiana or five-star out of New Orleans. Now, I worked in the restaurant. All the waitstaff was gay. Rodney was just kind of the really bloated, kind of not really attractive one at all, but he was funny. He would all, what's this song? Ooh, Miss Taylor Dane. You know, it was always, I remember him saying, Miss Taylor Dane. He loved Taylor Dane. 
But Rodney was like a mustache daddy, so immediately I was always attracted to that Burnt Reynolds, Sam Elliott. You got a mustache and a hairy chest. I'm just like, oh my gosh. So I believe we had smoked some pot. He's like, come on, we're going to go out to the Silly Salads. We're going to go to the bar. In college, even though it was a, a Christian college or a conservative Southern Baptist college, the kids were, we were still going out and dancing. And there was a gay bar in town called Silly Sally's. And a lot of us would wind up over there. And he goes, oh, do you want to do some ecstasy? And I had never, I don't even think I'd ever heard of what ecstasy was. And he goes, and I'm like, well, okay. And he goes, well, you'll just do a half. We'll give you a half a hit, you know? And I'm like, okay. And had a drink also. So I took it and then we drove to the club. And I remember paying, we walked into the club. I saw someone I knew and I sat and I stood and I spoke to him. And somehow the entire night went by. I, I remember having the most wonderful time, but I only remember is getting that far. I don't remember going further. I just remember that. But the next thing I remember is choking in a sense, like I'm choking. And when I regained consciousness, I was already back in his bed, smashed up against his headboard, I was choking because my legs were up over my head and I was like kind of twisted like that. And I could feel, I could literally, and it felt like he was like punching me in the gut or something, but I was like, oh my God, it's like, and again, it's never happened that easy. So I would say if I ever gonna try anal sex again, well, it's like, gave me a hit of ecstasy, some pot, you know, cause it looked like it worked that time, but yeah, it only took 30 years to realize, oh, that dude raped you, dude. But, you know, again, like most with most gay guys, we think, oh, well, obviously I did something or I had to have, you know, been open to it. But yeah, that was that was interesting to, again, think back in retrospect. I guess my first conscious sexual experience with another man would have been my freshman year of college. He was the manager of a Camelot Music and Debbie Harry's second solo album after Blondie had broken up, had come out. And I wanted the posters. There were a lot of Debbie Harry posters on display. And I remember coming in and befriending this guy. I guess he asked me over to his apartment one night. And I remember going over there. And I mean, I had to have been conscious of what I wanted to happen that night. And I guess we were maybe drinking. I can't really remember. But we wound up in the shower. Maybe I'd seen too many movies where there was sex in the shower, and maybe I thought that was something really like the ultimate erotic. I do like sex in showers though, because it just clean, you know, there's no cleanup. So maybe that was on my part. But yeah, I remember it with him. I <laughs> broke that guy's heart. He wound up quitting his job, moving back to Mississippi because, you know, of course I started feeling like guilty, like, oh my God, am I going to burn in hell? Because there was still a little bit of that ingrained. I even tracked him down on Facebook one time, but I just didn't have the heart to go, 
Hi, remember me? I think I fucking ruined your life. But you have to understand, I was only like 20. No, I wasn't even in my 20s. I was only like 18, because I graduated high school when I was 17. Yeah, I was 18 years old. When I started dating that guy, the manager from Camelot, he had a gym membership, and that's when I got into gym memberships. And then immediately, the first time I took a low-impact aerobic class, the girls were all like, you, you need to get a routine together. We will hire you on the spot. And then at my first gym class, and I was immediately hired. So from then on, I never paid for a gym membership. I was always paid to work out. Some of the guys that were kind of gay in the gym or in the locker room, they were married, they had to have like wives. So I think this guy was married. So he was in the hot tub and he was like, you know, come in here. And like, I came in and you know, you could only sit in the four seats. You know what I mean? It was like, boom, boom. And then the guy across from you. So me and this guy were sitting across from each other. And it was also one of those hot tubs that it kind of reclined you. So you have to sit back like that. So this guy is sitting across from me and he's butt naked. And there are guys that keep coming in and out this area. So this guy is just like, you know, kind of flirting with me, like, come over here and sit. And he's trying to grab me under, and it's freaking me out. It's making me really, really uncomfortable because I'm thinking someone's gonna see when all of, his, all of a sudden he leans back and he goes something like, oh no, you need to let yourself go. And with that, he throws his legs up in the air. And mind you, he has no clothes on, so he's, feet and these legs come up like spread eagle and immediately I literally roll out of that hot tub so fast because it blew my mind. Because again, he was kind of like this kind of Liberace. He was just a little too, oh, oh, uh, Paul End, you know, a little grinning. And it, it just seemed like he was so obvious. I knew that I had to stay away from him, you know. I had another similar uh, experience. There was a preacher one time. He preached at one of the mega churches. It was this big giant church in Alexandria, Louisiana. And he was a really, he was a married man, everything. I thought he was so handsome and so cute. So he worked out at my gym too. And he'd be in the steam room, you know, and I met him in there and we'd chat and everything. And he would get on the subject of, oh, do you like massages? You know, I love rub downs, whatever. And I don't remember how this happened, but he wound up coming over to my apartment and he was like, oh, do you want to give me a rub down? I'm thinking we're going to have sex, you know? And I'm like, yes, because this guy was hot to me. So he strips down to his underwear and I'm kind of giving him a rub down and of course, I would keep kind of going more closer to like his penis and everything. And it would be, you know, like, oh, no, no, more here, you know, like more here where I'm sore, whatever. So nothing ever happened. But, you know, he would do that massage thing. But somehow I remember we got on the sub subject of gay porn or something. And he goes, oh, do you have gay porn? And I go, yeah, I have a lot of mag I have a big magazine collection. He goes, hey, show me. So he's going through all these books, these magazines, and, and he just stops and he's like, you should get rid of all this, you know? And then it became this weird, 
uh, this is wrong. So it was like I was seduced and then I teased and got him all worked up and then it was, this is wrong. And I remember that was like the last time that I second guessed you know, myself as, you know, a person of, at that point, a person of faith. And I remember I threw away, okay, I, w I would give anything to have those magazines. Those were my favorite porn magazines of all time. Threw them all away. And I also remember I tried to stop masturbating at that time, which was, which was actually kind of rocked because it lasted a week. And I remember... And I, I'd given all my porn away. All of my porn was gone because I only did magazines. I still like magazines to this day. Um, and I remember, okay, all right, this isn't going to work. Fuck this. I'm going to jack off. And I'll never forget after a week, you know, because once you started learning to masturbate, you were masturbating every day. So this is probably the longest I'd ever been without masturbating. And I remember sitting on the corner of my bed just like this. Remember these hardwood floors? And I remember jacking off and I remember the orgasm was so incredible and it was just so monumental that I remember thinking, I should try and do this more often because it was, ju it was just like, this was amazing. It was like a born again virgin kind of thing. And I never heard back from that preacher. Whatever happened to that guy? Cause he was a preacher of a mega church. I was dating this one guy who I was certain was a sociopath, but he, he actually just sold real estate. But real estate people, they have a reverse phone log or something. I was supposed to be home at his place, this guy I was dating, and I had taught a class, and of course I met this cute guy at the gym, and he lived right around the corner from the gym, so we just ran over, had a quickie, little bang, and because I was late, I made the mistake of calling my boyfriend from the guy's home. Okay, the minute I hung the phone up, the phone rang immediately, and I knew it was him. I knew he had, maybe Star 69 was out, I don't think so, but he did something to where he called me back and he got the number. And it picked up, and I was looking at this guy, Ken, and I was like, oh my God, it's like, do, uh, we can't, and then we forgot the answering machine. So then the answering machine picked up. Hey, this is Ken. But my ex had gone to the real estate office, put in the number, found the guy's address, found the guy's name, and then the messages. So did you enjoy sucking Ken Topping's dick at 452 West 43? You know what I mean? It was kind of like one of those things. So that was just, you know, kind of crazy. I did a play uh, called Making Porn back in the 90s, which was about the gay porn industry. And it was the first of one of those what we called nudie plays, all these nudie gay plays. So it wasn't about great writing anymore. It just became where any gay guy who thinks he has a special experience can write a story and it, let's have naked gay guys and then everyone will come and see it because, you know, gay men love looking at naked gay men. 
in the play, I played a jaded porn star and I had to do this scene where I had to simulate masturbation on a stool. And it was supposed to be like at a porn theater, like I was this porn star. So my back is to the audience and I'm on a stool and I'm butt naked and was doing, I don't know if you can see that, was doing like that. So, you know, you're just faking it, but you had to kind of start getting going to make it believable. So I'm doing that, it's getting no reaction. But then I'm, with the thrusting, I'm noticing that the chair does not seem that sturdy. And then I noticed that screws were popping out and the bench that, that was what was standing on was separating. So basically what happened was as I reached the end of the orgasm, the, the stool fell apart, the benches came apart, and I tumbled backwards naked on stage. No one said anything. It wasn't a laugh, a, oh my God, nothing. And that was, that was just weird, weird, weird. I don't even know if I've ever been in love because I, I, I would hope that if you were ever in love, it would last for longer than a year, a tumultuous year. Um, but there was a guy that I met in Provincetown uh, that I, to this day, I consider my soulmate because um, I think we were both really attracted to each other. We both loved the same music. Uh, so we had a lot in common there. Um, he knew what I did as a performer. That was never an issue, which that's always been an issue. But I always seemed to find the guys that, they didn't wanna have to support a performer. You know, even though I've always supported myself, even though I've always lived check to check, you know, and it, it's always been a struggle. I've never had someone support me and I never would want that. I've had plenty of, we've all had opportunities to be kept or, or to land in, but again, that's just an uneasy feeling for me. I don't, again, I'm, I'm not gonna be at someone's beck and call. My whole sexuality, trajectory really was defined by what I did for a living um, in that I was a 30-year fitness professional so that helped with meeting guys most of the times you didn't even have to leave the gym but it also ruined any other relationship because if you were dating someone jealous which you know I had a couple of good old sociopaths it was you know who'd you fuck in the steam room today and it wouldn't matter if you did or you didn't, you did. Or there was an opportunity, so guilty by association, which was annoying, but I think it did get me on a pattern to where, unlike other people, I just never really sought out relationships. I either never felt confident of what I could bring financially to the relationship, or that person would usually be bothered by my, um, what I did for a living. You know, like even the comedy I did was subversive gay comedy where I remember one guy saw a sketch and was like, you're naked. Well, cause well, the camera was cut. So it looked, appeared we're naked. Is this who I'm dating? Are you just this guy that just goes out on stage with his cock flapping around? And I go, well, no, my dick was tucked between my legs. 
you know, as if that would make it better. <laughs> like, no, it was just a mangina. That's all it was. And yes, I was brushing it with a hairbrush and then playing a recorder. Why should you be offended by that? But the last guy I dated, and this would have been like 10 years ago, just had it in his mind that after every Connie show, no, mind you, after every drag show, that there was somehow going to be 10 guys just waiting backstage to fuck me. And I kept explaining to him, like, it could not be further from the truth. It's like, it, not at all. But whether it was the health and fitness career, my acting, <laughs> there was always some excuse to not want to date me. I'm just like, oh God, the relationship thing is, uh, it never worked out for me. Um, did I ever want to be alone as I enter my 60s or whatever? Well, no, but more and more I come to, to the realization that that's probably going to happen. I don't know if I'm disappointed by that or let down or, or what. I mean, yeah, I would have loved to have been able to experience um, more relationships or maybe given that a chance. But again, if it wasn't going to be with someone that's compatible with you, then I would rather not experience it at all. Because one thing I don't like is to be involved with someone and then to constantly have stress like someone insecure. I found the last relationship I was in, I was very, I was almost passive because I was just like, this is fine, you know, whatever. But then it literally came out, oh, so honey, I know you're gonna, your show's coming back up and you're gonna be doing a lot of stuff. I mean, is there anything you wanna talk about? And literally it was just like, you could not have asked a worse question and everything was fine, but it's like, you obviously want to talk about so all right let's talk about some and then it was over in five minutes because it was too big of an obstacle well yeah it's just it's like you're it was he just kept trying to understand it and it's like and this is you know when you talk about your family accepting your sexuality it's like it was hard. i couldn't get my family to accept my career choice much less my sexuality and you, I have dealt with that in the gay community also. It's like if they accept me sexually, they're not accepting me because, well, I want to be able to go to Paris and I don't want to pay for you. And it's like, well, gee, maybe I'll get booked in Paris and then we'll get to go to Paris and I can work the whole time. Maybe, you know, it's just like, or it's like, fuck Paris. Give a fuck, you know? Nothing was ever easy for me on any level. Whether it was a TV network going, you're offensive, but you're brilliant. Even RuPaul's Drag Race. For me, there was always something that someone had a problem with. That's been my whole life. Whether it's been a relationship, a career uh, in the church, or it's like I, and, that, and another weird thing about that is, is you know, as far as let's just take acting on a surface headshot level. I look like a leading man. You know, I'm uh, Thomas Jane or an Aaron Eckhart or a Matthew Modine. You know, it's, that's the type. But I would never be looked at like that because, well, number one, I'm openly gay. Number two, I'm a comedian and a, a gay sensibility comedian. So meaning that, again, there are too many 
square pegs and round shapes that, and, and luckily it does work for me now, but again, on paper in every aspect, and I haven't even thought about that until you asked me that question, but yeah, I've never quite fit in anywhere. So I kind of don't ever look to think that that's ever gonna change. I rarely get to kiss anymore, which I would say, as far as being a single man who um, has avoided relationships or anything, that would be the one thing that, um, as far as intimacy that I do miss is sharing kisses with guys, because that's, you know, really nice. I've just resolved myself to the fact that it is what it is. Got my little kitty cats over here and all that stuff. So it's not like I'm unhappy, but maybe a little disappointed that, you know, chances weren't taken on me before. But again, that could all be me not wanting to take the chance, you know, because people are like, John, you could have, you could be in a relationship if you really wanted it. And I'm like, well, maybe I don't want it. I certainly don't want a relationship just for a relationship because listen, most of my friends in relationships, I would give anything for them to just like break up, you know? It, I, so I looked at my mom and dad's relationship and I was like, uh-uh, I don't want any of that shit. And I know I would be a bitch just like her. You know what I mean? So unless you can find that guy, that ride or die, which my mom found the perfect guy, you know, unless you can find that guy, um, I don't know. I'd rather just kind of take my chances and be, be the ball, you know, just try and sail over all of it. Your heart still beats, you know, you still, you're still viable mm -hmm. sexually, romantically. I did, I tried to do some of the apps. I just can't deal with the endless chit chat. That shit drove me crazy because it was just constantly like, is there a reply? I'm not a very successful performer or, or you know what I mean, like financially or anything, but I have gotten to do things as a performer that a lot of people will never experience. And let me tell you, no one has ever heard of the Nellie Olsons hardly, except of a certain group. But let me tell you, there is nothing greater than having two people that you think are the smartest and the funniest. Politically, they're genius. To have them create for you and to write words for you to be funny, that's a gift. It hasn't provided me a luxurious lifestyle by any means, but artistically, I'm very, very satisfied because there's nothing worse than having to repeatedly get a phone call from a manager. Uh, hey, um, it's a commercial. You got to drive out to Santa Monica. Um, well, what's it for? Um, it's for this telephone, you, you know, and then it's, it's not like a commercial, it's nothing that's going to play on your strengths, you know? Yeah. Once I found out with the drag thing, how to create a show and to write my own material, even with the RuPaul thing, it kind of got flirted around. Like I thought there was going to be a kind of a resurgence of, you know, maybe offers to come and perform. And it wasn't because there's still that, I still think that there's that thing of tunnel vision, you know, where, oh, we saw you, you warmed people up, you did some knee lifts. So when we need that person, we'll call, it's like, what? 
is something I did, you know. I do more than that, but, you know, it's typecasting. So I have found that most people throughout my life have decided to not take a chance because they don't think people will get it. But the fact of the matter is, is people do get it. And when the people forget those gatekeepers and just, you know, come to a live show, they're moved in a way that, you know, they are not going to be moved by Grey's Anatomy or Scandal or Young Sheldon or anything like that. But for the grace of God, I do not know how I'm still here. I really, really don't. It blows my mind that I'm now at 52 and I'm doing what I always wanted in a sense that I always just wanted to perform. I didn't want to have to do this and do that. My only other gig is the stupid Cameo app. I even had one that said, can you dress up as Buffalo Bill from Silence and the Lambs? And believe it or not, and oh, I did. I put on Goodbye Horses in the background. I had this, this thing and then I tucked my dick between my leg and like the cameras here I kept jumping up to let them know it's like hey hey wait she's a great big i'm all right i'm all right maybe i won't have sex anymore i'll just you know be that old tranny granny that's just flirting with random strangers And now, my follow-up conversation with John, recorded just a few weeks ago. I'll be honest, this conversation was kind of difficult for us to edit because John and I both have very stream-of-consciousness brains, so I would encourage you to just listen to this convo in the same way that I watch David Lynch films, which is that I don't worry too much about logic or structure and just let the images and references wash over you and you'll be fine. I like to begin these update interviews with just um, asking you where you're at right now and what you've been up to. Well, since the pandemic, it's uh, mostly been just getting back out there and reestablishing performance gigs and stuff like that. I've been doing a Sunday show called Soundtrack Sundays where I take a different film soundtrack and kind of create uh, performances based around the soundtrack. (laughs) I love how in your interview you clocked Dress to Kill as like a defining movie for you as an adolescent and Mm -hmm. your understanding of sex. And I was wondering if you could just give listeners a little more context about why you think it made such a deep impression on you. Is Dress to Kill kind of a spin on Psycho? Is that what it is? What I love about it is it's a film that starts off about one character, and you think it's going to be about this character, but it really isn't. That's exactly what Psycho does. Yeah, and it's because you start off thinking that that movie is about Angie Dickinson, who is this unfulfilled, sexually unfulfilled housewife. And... uh, I think we did talk about that opening scene where I, you know, I've seen it dozens and dozens of times, but only now am I realizing that it's a dream sequence and she's dreaming, but it's because her husband rolls over and starts having sex with her while she's asleep. You know what I mean? So it's that typical thing and she's about to get orgasm, but then he leaves and leaves her there 
just at the point where she was about to get some joy in her life and she's left unfulfilled again. She's unloading all of this stuff to her therapist, but what she doesn't know is that her therapist is, you know, suffering from some gender identity issues, mm -hmm. gender dysmorphia. Um, and in talking about it, it kind of arouses him and she's murdered because mm -hmm. it's 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 a little vicious you know what i mean i mean but here's the thing what's great is after that character that you thought was the character we were going to be invested in for the rest of the movie like janet lee after she's disposed of you're introduced to this hooker character played by nancy allen which i think that's the character that gay men would relate to or gay kids you know what i mean it's that you know she's she's judged for her sexual choices you know because she's a prostitute you know just the same way we're judged for you know even though i don't like to say the word choosing you know the fact that you know i have sex with the same sex and blah 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 it's so weird that you bring that up because I was thinking specifically of those, I call them slashers. And I was thinking about, of course, Dress to Kill and Psycho, uh, Silence of the Lambs, where every killer is some type of, you know, homosexual, transvest, you know what I mean? But it all comes out as gender phobia or homophobia. That's right. how it's labeled. And then I was thinking to myself, I was like, isn't that funny how now we have that perspective that this is homophobic, but... If I had to name you my favorite horror <laughs> films, they all star that character. Well, basically, all of the movies that I named, including Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is, is very fun in the way uh, Leatherface, you know, the killer, yeah. the son with the chainsaw. He also plays uh, the mother in one of the scenes. And there's that great dinner scene where, you know, the whole family's there and they've got poor Marilyn Burns tied to the table and you know when they're about to knock her upside the head and if you look at Leatherface in the background he's got an apron on and a yes. wig and a full uh, again he wears people's faces so whatever face he's wearing is mega blue eye shadow and lips and I'm sitting there going like oh my god he's in drag it's, it's mm. like because that's he has to present as mom I'm mom now I gotta get everything clean oh my god I, had, <laughs> I have to cook dinner I have to kill dinner I have to hunt dinner down you know so <laughs> there I am able to see the humor especially now but again I understand that I am from a different generation. I don't personally feel offended by those things, but I understand how, you know, uh, transgender people can be very offended by those things because I'm, I always say I'm just, I'm a man in spandex. I was already conditioned to kind of jump around and show my body off, even as an aerobics instructor. So when I started doing drag and creating drag shows, I knew that that had to be the that's the performance so that's got to be for me the biggest part because that's what i know i can do i didn't know if i could write i didn't know if i could tell a story i didn't know if i could on my own hold an audience's attention for 45 minutes you know so those are things that i kind of had to prove but i always knew i was energetic and and talented and 
what's more energetic than, you know, a cross-dressing slasher? Because if you think about movies like Dress to Kill, those, those characters are having to go into quick drag so fast to go and murder those girls, you know what I mean? And then Norman's got to run back upstairs, get out of the drag. Oh, my God. That's the other thing about De Palma yeah. is they're all satire. So it, it's hard for people to want to, you know, laugh at something like that because, again, it, it does have the potential to offend so many people. And I mean, I'm trying not to be overly sensitive to that, but I have to become more sensitive to that because honestly, because of where I'm from and how I was raised, you know, which was with no sensitivity training at all. Well, I mean, (laughs) but it it does speak of a certain generation of, of queer men who were raised via the TV, who, who did have access to early versions of MTV and, and HBO where we were seeing things on the TV without parent supervision, uh, maybe even for the first time ever, you know, mm-hmm. and and the fact that like Dress to Kill was there to sort of inform you about what dangers may lurk in the future mm-hmm. with regards to sex and violence, you know. It like that really packs a punch to a young viewer. Like, do you think that that it, it had that effect, or am I just kind of like? Oh no, I think you're totally right. I think that's why uh, gay people are, you know, really attracted to slasher films, and, and it's also you know like when something like those club shootings happen, and you know people say, you know. When we go into clubs, sometimes you are looking like, okay, if something was to happen, where is the near? Okay, there's the exit. Okay, and here's another place I could get out. And you think about those things. So I I like to to think that the final girls and, you know, the characters like Nancy Allen's, you know, those are the ones that like – I'm going to learn from her and what she does, you right. know, to to outmaneuver this killer. And um, so I always felt like that was preparing us for adulthood, a lot of those old movies. You know, it really is from that, um, that early Gen X when Cable came into the suburban home. Like any kid, locks his bedroom door, puts on his favorite songs and dances and dresses up. It, that, that really is what I'm doing. I think it's because of my age and the fact that I've been on the earth for a considerable amount of time to where I have ingested so much media yeah and pop culture there's so much just swirled in there that it just kind of comes out free association so some of it's planned and a lot of it is spontaneous and and i think that's the kind of punk spirit in my drag that i i hope people appreciate as hard as it is you have managed to carve out a very specific kind of entertainment that i personally have never seen anywhere else so i just want to say that you know. Well, you know, I, I think it's I've been very lucky, like the few, you know, the handful of things that I've done have been, you know, some pretty cool stuff. But I never had like a good relationship with an agent or a manager. The industry is it's it's such a hustle. You know, in 2009, when everything went from paper to video, you know, they were like, well, we can't represent you anymore unless you put a video together. And I was like, OK, bye. And that was yeah. 2009. I am for a live audience. I loved your last show, by the way. Um, oh, thank you. That last show you saw was kind of my take on where I'm at now as a yes. 55 year old performer. <laughs> yes, because and you would I, you would you would you would 
come on stage all... as though you were backstage and you would yes. just be exhausted. <laughs> exhausted because it is. It's like it's painful. And then I <laughs> I loved some of the comments from some of my friends were like, oh, John, that was that was so good and so sad to see what you go through. And I'm like, isn't it? It's, isn't it sad that I can bring such joy? But trust me, the minute I'm off that stage, it is sad. It's because <laughs> like, it what hurts. you do, what you do is, is so physical though. It's like, how could it not have a physical effect on your body? You know, it's like, look, it's, I get exhausted just watching you. But it is that gauntlet thing of that's who Connie is. And that's that kind of Southern thing. Of It's like she's driving the getaway car, man. And it's going to be yes. wild. And it's going to be foot full on the gas. My favorite is when they go, it was too short. Your show's too short. And I'm standing there in a puddle of water, just dripping. And I look at them and I go, I just gave you three hours in 45 minutes and you're going to complain that it was too short i'll always want to leave them wanting more you know the drag queens that do drag queen story hour you know and how people can't separate that drag experience with say the drag experience that i bring to the table which will be in a club that you have to be 18 or older you know to get into and it's going to be a very sexual performance you know, yeah. it, 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 it can't help but, but, but be a sexual performance because I'm laying it all out there. I'm doing every, you know what I mean? It yeah. is like, you know, you could be watching someone have sex and they get really sweaty. You could be watching someone dance their ass off and they're good. Either way, it's like when you're giving everything raw and natural and unedited, you know, and uncensored, then that that's that's great and cathartic <laughs> you know because women are probably my my biggest fans straight women and i don't know what it is that they love so much about me other than you know they tell me that when they're on the dance floor they want to look like they're having as much fun as i am having and i tell them the reason i'm having as much fun on stage dancing like that is because I'm not giving a rat's ass about what anybody else in that club is thinking about because this is my space. This is a theater and you can't, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I get it, but it's like, just go out there on the dance floor in a club and just try to, you know, do it. Trust me, you're going to feel good. (laughs) I was thinking recently, I'm just going to tell you this quick story about clientele when I worked in the fitness industry out in Century City. And there was this one guy, I never... I mean, he was gay, I I found out, Uh, but he would take my spin class and um, I invited him to a show. And I said, come see my show. It's Valentine's show. And he came to the show. Of course, it's it's in the theater below the Mexican restaurant. So he got shit faced. And after the show, when everyone's like, great show, great show, he comes up to me and he goes, I can do that. No, really, really, I can do that. Do you want to hear me sing? And he literally, he was so drunk that whatever he saw brought him so out of the Century City lawyer and into the, and I saw, and I said, oh my God, you, you, 
you probably really wanted to be a drag queen or a show choir kid growing and and you just you were just like uh-uh i'm not disappointing my parents i'm like oh my god i just wanted you to enjoy the show not try and take <laughs> over it so but it's kind of cute up. that he was inspired by your you know liberated sort exactly. of exactly because that's what we want from our drag queens it is. And I think that's what people want for themselves. Like I say, it's like the women mm-hmm. want to be able to let themselves go on the dance floor. And if they lose a tit, they just put the tit back in and it shouldn't be a cause for, hey, baby, let me take you home. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, I sorry, my tit flew out. Get over it. I'm sure that a lot of listeners would be curious about what your experience on Drag Race was like. Do you want to talk about that a little? Sure. Um I was on the season with Nina West and uh, those drag queens, and I led the mini challenge. You know, they do a short challenge in the first half of the show, and I believe it was an Olympic-themed episode, so I was brought on uh, early in the episode to get the girls in shape. Because that's, that's kind of combining your drag and your aerobics past. So It is. And, you know, the, the, the thing that's weird about that is when that happens... Unfortunately, people and most of my fans, now they associate me with fitness and aerobics. Mm. And also, you know, it's that thing of where you can still really typecast yourself. The show got me thousands and thousands of social media followers, but it didn't open up any doors for me as a performer. And that's Mm. what I was really, really, really hoping for and counting on. But when I go back and look at it, you can't even tell what I do. You know what I mean? By that thing. So those opportunities are great. I hope I get more opportunities to to show what I do before I'm too old to do them. Um, I would say tune in to next season of uh, uh, just be watching the next season of Drag Race. You know, mm. maybe I've signed a couple of things, but you never know who could pop up. <laughs> That's you know, exciting. at any time. But they're wonderful, and it was so much fun. And it was really the crew. You know, I knew it was great when I when we did that one take, and the crew was just just they had the best time. They were laughing oh. and wiping That's their funny. eyes. So I was like, oh, this is great. And I felt like I had, you know, kind of came in and was like, I told you guys I could knock this shit out of the park. Right. So we're going to just need to wrap it up. But I do just want to ask sort of generally, like, what was it like listening to yourself from from three years ago? Was there anything that came up for you? Oh, God. To be honest, I couldn't even bear to listen to it. I remember talking about my dad because I think he had just passed. I tend to be very honest and blunt these days about my feelings toward my parents because I'm just, and I'm only that way because I'm trying to deal with the trauma of, and the sadness that- Is your mom still with us? My mom is still with us. We just moved her into an assisted living home in just above San Antonio, Texas. (laughs) She had the option to find a place in Northeast Louisiana, but decided maybe it's time to move her, just move her on up. So (laughs) $6,000 a month and they'll come in and wipe her ass. But there goes my inheritance. (laughs) So- because she's Irish, and and as you know about the Irish, uh, uh, we don't die easy. Mm-hmm. We're gonna draw this shit out as long as there's money to pay for that room. I have to venture back down to Northeast Louisiana to kind of get the house cleared out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's that's already bringing up anxiety. Well, the thing is, is now she's lucid and she makes sense. So now everyone's like, oh. 
shit. Now she's going to, you know, now she really is going to live another 10 years. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> Dark humor, guys. Well, it's been fun chatting. Yeah, it's always fun to talk to you, too. Well, hopefully I will get back up to Seattle. Um, yes. You know, I, that was, I would have to say that was possibly one of my favorite audiences ever in my life oh we love drag in seattle but i felt like i was i I was like this is why great music comes out of you know the northwest is because you really feel so appreciated and inspired by what what you're bringing to the audience you know it's so important for the audience to 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 meet meet your energy level you know and come back and i felt that immediately Um, well when you come back to seattle let me know and i will alert the masses i look forward to that (laughs) thank you so much for catching us up well thank you so much for having me Fruitball interviews are edited for length and narrative clarity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruitball collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions, a description of the collaborative interview process, and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit Bowl is produced independently without any corporate media infrastructure or full-time staff. Help support our efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes from each episode that are not available to the general public. Or promote your business by sponsoring an episode of Fruit Bowl or dedicate an episode to a loved one. Episode sponsorships and dedications are 100% tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax deductible donations. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate or write Dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com for more information. Social media platforms often censor mentions or depictions of queer sexuality. Accounts are often suspended or banned outright without notice or due process. As a result, Promoting Fruit Bowl is an uphill battle, so we rely on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends about Fruit Bowl, rate us on your podcast platform, or write a review on Apple Podcast. And, of course, you can also follow us, for now, on Twitter at Fruit Bowl Pod, and Instagram and TikTok at Fruit Bowl Podcast. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Rebecca M. Davis. This has been a production of Cubed Media, 
all rights reserved. Thanks for listening.